Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Double Reel, a monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's December 2023 and Christmas has come around again with its usual unnerving speed. As you listen to this, no doubt you have a lot to do for the festive season. We also know this time of year is very difficult for many people. We're here to help you get through it with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Hello, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's good to be back. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into four parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month. This is the first part of the episode, Double Real Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023. We'll shortly be releasing our next instalment, the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz. Next week, we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the remake, Hate Watch. The following week, it'll be the big conversation where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that later, and there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can follow us on letterbox.com slash Double Real, where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. You can also find the Double Real Podcast on the new social media platforms, Threads and Mastodon. And hot off the presses, we're now on Blue Sky as well. If you like the podcast, we'd be very grateful you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Real Monthly. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts that you might like to check out, The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus AI, is out now, and it's been a little while because of various other scheduling commitments, but we will be doing another episode for you soon. With that little piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some messages we received from listeners. One of the films we'll be looking at is Dream Scenario, and Damien says, I missed this at the cinema, but I do want to catch up with it. It looks intriguing, and from the trailer, it seems to have a Bo is Afraid vibe. A24 always make interesting films. Thomas has seen it and says, Cage is excellent, one of his best ever performances. The ending was weak, but overall I liked it. Sad and weird and funny all at the same time. 
We will, of course, be discussing Ridley Scott's new film, Napoleon, and Phil says, This felt like a movie which depended on whether you buy into the tone and the story Ridley Scott wanted to tell, which is arguably a trademark of this iconic but uneven director. He stepped away from the traditional epic historical film approach of things like Gandhi and Braveheart, and gone for something more like Amadeus, the idea of a great genius whose achievements made history, but behind closed doors was eccentric and almost weird. The film was made up of two parts, impressive battles and historical sweep in one part, and his relationship with Josephine in the other. I don't think the two parts completely fit together, but I had a great time watching it. Gale less impressed. I think Phoenix was miscast. I didn't like his interpretation of the character. Kirby was great, though. Overall, I felt like loads of the story had to be cut out, and I'd like to see the four-hour cut they're going to put on Apple. The Cronenberg Institute project concludes this month with Videodrome, and Nicholas says, my favourite Cronenberg film, completely twisted and intriguing all the way through. Graham gets in touch about Cronenberg overall and says, hard to rank Cronenberg films as he has made so many classics in a genre of his own creation. My personal favourite is probably the one that derailed his career for a while, Crash. I'm yet to see his latest crimes of the future, but it looks promising. Thanks as always for your messages. It's always great to hear from you. Now, let's get on with the podcast. Um, First thing to say is I'm very excited about this month's episode. I'm a huge Ridley Scott fan and there's quite a big Ridley Scott theme to all uh, installments uh, of this latest issue. Um, We'll be talking about Ridley Scott's Napoleon in, in Double Reel Monthly. All of the features, uh, Hidden Gem, uh, Classics, etc. are Ridley Scott or Ridley Scott related. And our big conversation is going to be about our top 10 Ridley Scott films. So uh, as I, you know, Ridley Scott, one of, one of, if not my favourite film director, I'm as happy as a pig in shit. I'm very grateful that James is going along with me on it. Uh, so that's big. Hopefully, this is going to help us finish the um, uh, the year on a high because I, I do think the last the last episode we put out our big conversation about a bucket list cinema is one of the best things we've done. I, I really love doing it. You can you can feel the love of great films, you know, in every minute of it. So hopefully, we're going to you know finish uh, with a big kind of with a bang and and see you into the new year. Um, but yeah, the first thing we always do on Double Room Monthly is talk about the news. Uh, what news has caught your eye, mate? Um, news has caught my eye. I don't know if I've missed a lot this month, but I feel like it was quite quiet. The Most of the news related to the stuff that we're going to talk about, like obviously we're going to talk about Napoleon, and I kind of wanted to talk about the reaction to that, and I sort of counted that as news. Um. Yeah, we can cover that when we when we but do the review of it. Yeah? The biggest bit of news I think would have to be um, what's it called? The Marvels is that what that new film's called? Yeah, that's absolutely fucking bombed. It has um, like bombed. Um, it, it's basically the worst financial performance uh, for a Marvel film ever. What, what do you think of the reactions to that? What do you think of the, what people have been saying about why and everything else? So, I don't want to buy in too much about the fact that it's about Captain Marvel, who's a bit of a kind of against-type superhero, because I've seen a couple of, like, just negative and nasty reactions about it being a female lead, and, you know, even then when it's a female lead, it's not the kind of stereotypical female lead, and I don't want to buy into that and let Joey Barton have any more time than he fucking deserves, but in a film-related sense. But Mm -hmm. I think... I think a lot of it is just down to the fact that... It's just, I think it's just the kind of final bit of shit to fall in the toilet pan for Marvel in the past couple of years. Yeah, it feels like they've reached the bottom of a of a of a downward trend, right? Really, since twenty nineteen, they've been on the way down. There've been a few bright spots. I mean, Black Panther. I don't think you were that keen on Black Panther two, but I mean, it, it's one of the better reviewed ones of recent um, years, and it did well. Guardians of the Galaxy did well. 
Um, but on the whole, they've been getting worse reviews and making less money ever since ever since Endgame finished, right? So with with Black Panther, I kind of remember, I didn't like the fact that it was nearly three hours long, and I thought the story was quite weak. Mm-hmm. Basically, the the big bad was um, Water Wakanda, but then the big mm-hmm. bad wasn't Water Wakanda, and I just don't think. Um, the way they kind of made Shuri the focal point was the right way to take the story. Personally, I just, that, no. Yeah, we I, talked I, about that. I mean, it's like, I know that Shuri ends up being Black Panther, but the thing is, ending up being Black Panther after a while is different from, sorry, we haven't got Chadwick Boseman, good luck, uh, see how you get on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's not a criticism of Letitia right? I just think they've kind of maybe rushed. Yeah. Maybe which they, which they wouldn't which they which they films. wouldn't which they wouldn't have done given the you know circumstances. I I still think yeah. they had other options, but they did what they did, right? Yeah, I think Black Panther was always going to have its good moments. I think um, what's the guy that na- the name of the guy that plays in Baku? What's his name? Is it Winston? Uh, so Duke? The, yeah, yeah, the one who's in Us as well. Yeah, I like yeah, him. I thought he was very good, and Danai Gurira is that her name? Who plays? I don't, don't, I don't know what she will. She, plays she, will she will forever be Michonne from The Walking Dead, but yeah, yes, she's but very good in this. Her character, I can never remember the name of the character in mm-hmm. Black Panther, but she's basically the head of the uh, the kind of the King's Guard. Yeah. Um, she was good, and there were some funny moments in terms of dialogue, but I think, I think what they're always going to struggle with is that they... they could, personally, I would have brought back Michael Jordan Michael B. Mm. Jordan, sorry, not the basketball player, although that would yeah. be interesting. Um, and maybe gone down the route of keeping him, like maybe he doesn't die because it, they kind of leave it open, don't they? Yeah, the I, the I totally agree. You don't see him die. You see him so ask. Dead, you, you see him ask to die, but you don't see for sure whether um, uh, T'Challa agreed to that. And it would have yeah. been, I think, yeah, I think we talked about this before. I think that would have been a great yeah. choice because I like Michael B. Jordan. He would have he been electric. A, in the first he, one. he would have been a reluctant hero. Yeah, it would have been like, hey, you wanted to be Black Panther. You, act, we actually need you now. Come on then. And and he would, I think that sort of, you know, being the villain, trying to be the hero, you know, not popular with the people around him, but everyone's got to fight the fight. I think it, it would it would have given you the kind of drama and conflict that you need for a good movie, right? And gives yeah. Letitia Wright the chance because it wouldn't it would be a case of all right, I'll do this for a while, but knowing that the Shuri is there, do you know what I mean? I think it would have been a nice bridge. Um, yeah, but the thing is, right? If all of the other films were working, you'd have gone. Okay, do you know what I mean? But there was a lot. There's been a lot riding on every black, every Marvel film that's got a chance to be good. So when so when Guardians three was good, that's terrific. But at the same time, you think, well, and he's the only put. You know, James Gunn's the only person who's made a Marvel film work in ages, and he's going. So it's it's just not looked good for them for ages, has it? Yeah. So without sorry, because we kind of went on a bit of a tangent. There, I think without getting too much into it, I think Guardians of the Galaxy three worked because it was James Gunn, and that's his thing. It's not really. A stereotypical mm-hmm. Marvel film, it'll always be, you know, kind of James Gunn's kind of weird mm-hmm. and wacky universe. And then Black Panther was always going to have big support because of how popular the first one was. But I think when you look at the other films like Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and um, I didn't like Doctor Strange, so I'm going to include it in here. Yeah, the and, multiverse, the multiverse madness was crap. I mean, um, it, Cap- it, uh, not Captain Marvels, the Marvels. I think what other films have come out? Uh, Thor, it's, it's, Eternals was like they they attempted to bring in a new sort of a, a new group of heroes that if you hadn't read the comics, you hadn't heard of, and they absolutely sort of flopped. 
they just did a terrible job of it. Yeah, I they seem to have entirely lost their touch. And the, the, really, the, the poor performance of the Marvel shouldn't come as a surprise. I think the big surprise was it was almost like they've kind of given up on this phase of Marvel. They they just sneaked Marvels out as if to say, I mean, it, it was an hour and 40 minutes long, so as if they've cut it down to say, look, let's just kind of put something out. Let's try and get some money. Yeah, and they just... I think, yeah, I think the problem was is that from about 2014 to 2019, they didn't have any misses. Like, I know some people didn't like the first Captain Marvel. I thought it was okay. But, you know, you had started with Winter Soldier, which everyone loved. I thought it was okay. I loved Civil War. You had um, Tom Holland's Spider-Man films. You had Infinity War. You had um, you had Endgame. You had Thor, um, Ragnarok. You had all these films and it just seemed like they couldn't miss and I remember starting with Winter Soldier thinking this is probably the since the Avengers probably the best Marvel film I've seen they had a couple of they had a bit of a bad 2013 and then they came back with a success mm-hmm. in 2014 it felt like every year they were getting better what was 2015 Avengers Age of Ultron was kind of weak but then they had Civil War and they had um, well, then they I, had I, Black Panther and you just you felt like every time you watched a Marvel film you thought these are get the standard of these is getting to the point where I understand why these are the most popular things in cinema. Than when, and I feel like they didn't get as much... They obviously made loads of money, but I feel like because it's a, a superhero film and it's a comic book film, it didn't get as appreciated as it should have done in terms mm-hmm. of how good it was in terms of just being a film. Like everyone goes, oh, um, everything everywhere all at once, that's going to win all the Oscars. This is amazing. Whereas I didn't enjoy that as much as, say, Endgame. Okay, it's a, it's a comic book film, but the story... Uh, that they were trying to tell it felt like it was strong and they were going somewhere and they ended it so well with um with Endgame, um but once you get rid of someone like Thanos like Thanos is literally the existential threat to the universe he literally does that he kills half of all life in the universe and you think how do you how do you come back from that they mm-hmm. do it woohoo great success Tony Stark dies and it's like okay where'd you go from there that that's it and then you you can't really you can't just keep having the big bads that's the problem with comic books and comic book films is that you know i'm sure that this would have happened if they kept doing christopher nolan's um dark knight if they just went oh he's defeated bane now who's he fighting now oh now he's got the riddler okay now he's defeated the riddler who's he and you know what i mean there has to be a point where they end and because it's owned by disney and they are all about making money. It will never end. So obviously the standard of the film is going to suffer. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, basically two things happened. One of them is what you just said, which is after Thanos and after a lot of things have come to an end, you know, the Tony Stark era, the, um, you know, Chris Evans as Captain America, all of these things are coming to an end. And that's all a very hard act to follow. And it's kind of, you needed time to regroup and take stock and decide what to do next. And at exactly that moment, Bob Iger who thought he was a genius because he bought two fran- three franchises that had been very successful. He bought Marvel, he bought Pixar, and he bought Star Wars. Now, he didn't invent anything that was successful or good about that. He bought them because he could see they were successful, right? And then he just he decided that, like you say, he thought you can't miss. You can't miss with the Marvel film, so we will just throw everything at the wall and it will all stick. And we will have an, a, a, a big Marvel film, you know, every kind of six months or whatever, or every year or whatever, but loads of TV series as well. And all and everything will be tied in. Like, the, one of the problems with the Multiverse of Madness is if you hadn't watched WandaVision, that film made no sense. And, and I know the Marvel films have continuity. Previously, though, the continuity between films was pretty easy to pick up. 
Whereas now you have to watch all the TV shows. I don't need like 10 hours of homework before I watch a film. I want to watch the film, you know? And so they were spread too thin and they weren't actually paying near enough attention to what had made it work. And I, I think this is the... I mean, we say it's rock bottom. I don't know what happens next, but this, they, this is, they've fallen quite far. It's not like everything else has been working and this flopped. And I think if it was the Captain Marvel and, and the Marbles is too woke and female-led, then um, then that would uh, would hold some water. But it only did slightly worse than Ant-Man, you know? The latest Ant-Man film was dog shit, and that's that's not got uh, you know that's not gone super woke and diverse. So they've just they've just fallen. They've just forgotten. They've forgotten what made it work in the first place. I think. Yeah, but you, obviously you you can't make it work. That's the problem. They 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 went all out with the villain, mm-hmm. and if they were to just bring back another villain it, that had that same level of threat, you'd be like, oh for fuck's sake, not again. You know, it doesn't work. Um, they had. I think they needed to. They needed to kind of not. Uh, spread themselves as thinly as they did. I think they needed to understand they were at a crossroads. And I think they needed to take the films they were going to do and sort of build them up carefully. And each film needed to stand on its own a little bit. I remember you saying that. I remember when we talked about what next for Marvel, and you said what they need to do is they need to make films. They can, you know, if maybe there's an end scene where, where one story links a bit to the other film, but these films need to stand on their own. And they did not do that at all, did they? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Obviously, one of the best moments in the kind of Marvel universe is the um, the bit at the end of Endgame where all the you know the heroes come back and start fighting. But like I say, you, the whole point of films is that they need to be fresh. Mm-hmm. That's why nobody, well, people like the live action remakes, but that's why the majority of people see the live action remakes for what they are, which is just how can we make? It's money? just a cynical cash grab, isn't it? Um, I mean, everyone's in the business to make money, but people know the difference between something that's only there to make money and something that wants to make money by giving you your money's worth. And that's a big difference. Uh, because obviously, you know, the Mission Impossible films want to make money. Um, but Tom Cruise says that in return for your money, I'm going to throw myself off this fucking cliff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but every every villain, do, you know, does something different. And mm-hmm. the stakes, the stakes are obviously high because it's Mission Impossible. But it's... You know what I'm trying to say? Like it's. Uh... It, it, I mean, it's like, but but basically, part of the problem they said was the fate of the universe hangs in the balance in Endgame, right? So where do we go from here? The fate of all the universes for you know the multiverse and all the universes at once, and it's just like I don't. That doesn't just that just doesn't make sense to people. That doesn't have any kind of conceptual meaning, you know. But yeah, I mean, I think it, this. No one should be too surprised that a Marvel film is done badly because they've been doing badly for a while now. Um, I've I've got a couple of other news stories that come up. Ryan O'Neill died at the age of eighty-two. Um, I did see that, yeah. For people's information, because of scheduling and this is a busy time of year, we're recording uh, a little while, a couple of weeks uh, before the actual date of uh, release of the podcast, so we may miss some most up-to-the-minute news. But Ryan O'Neill has just died. Um, uh, he's made some iconic films. I think he's he's definitely uh, you know a big star in his day. I, I, I'm not going to gloss over the fact that there were some things in his personal life which were troubling. His daughter published a book about his drug addiction and his treatment of his kids, uh, where he did not behave himself. Don't wish to speak ill of the dead when they've just died, but let's not pretend you know people are you know saints or anything. But in his film career, uh, he did things like The Driver, Barry Lyndon, Love Story, Paper Moon. He was a proper movie star back in the 70s. Um, and so, you know, RIP to him and his films are there to watch for people who are interested. 
Um, Ryan O'Neill films, not sure how many you've even seen, mate, because he was very much of a certain era. He, his, his peak had been done before I even started watching films, really. Um, yeah, I saw that he died, and the only thing that I knew about him was that he was with Farrah Fawcett for a while. Um, yeah. Some, that's all some, I really Someone else's his career sort of predates you as well. Yeah, um, so it yeah. was definitely past um, you know, my time, and then I vaguely remember something in the news about him get was entitled to some sort of painting. I can't remember what, but mm. other than that, I didn't know much about the guy. I saw that he died. I didn't know anything about his personal life, but I think that's more, that ties into what you say of not wanting to speak ill of them and they've just died. So, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but yeah, his, I think his best films are The Driver and Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon is my favourite Kubrick film. Not everyone's favourite, but I mean, it's, he's, that film is, is 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 a masterpiece, and he serves the film very well in that. I don't think anyone thought of him as like you know the, he wasn't like in the same class as like De Niro and people like in the seventies, but he was a proper movie star, and he was very good in some very good films. So you know that that's the story of Ryan O'Neill. couple of other things uh the trailer's been released uh for furiosa which is the mad max film the story of um charlie's theron's character as, as a younger person rising to power um that looks really good and exciting i'm really looking forward to that yeah that does look good um george miller is taking his time over making his films which for a man of his age i'm not happy about but i cherish his films when he makes them because he, they're always there's something special about all of them um other news, uh, the Jonathan Majors domestic violence trial has started. I don't know any more about it than that. These things tend to go on and you'll find out after some time what's happened in them. But obviously that explains why Jonathan Majors has kind of very much changed the dynamic of his time in the Marvel films because he's on that. Don't know what you saw on that, mate. Uh, no, I've not, I've not seen it. I, imagine we'll see, I don't know if we'll see as much of it as we did, say, the Johnny Depp one because it's not as high profile, but I'll, I'll keep yeah. an eye on it and kind of yeah. keep tabs on it. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be a sequel to the Spinal Tap film. Uh, I've, I mean, I've got my doubts about this. Um, the thing is, all the people from the original film are in it. Rob Reiner is directing again. And I really love Rob Reiner. But the thing is, Rob Reiner's peak is is over. Um, but, I mean, a couple of the people from these films have really kept their hand in. Christopher Guest has, has gone on to make a number of very you know well-regarded mock documentary films. So I, I just feel like it's done. Don't I mean it's like don't who 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 touches a classic like that, you know? And all the all the movie star, all the big music stars are queuing up to be in it this time, and it's that's always too cosy. Paul McCartney and Elton John are going to be in it, and I, I don't like it when the when the stars that are being satirised are, are there in on the joke because it always takes the edge off it. It's a shame. I'm going to pretend this doesn't exist. Um, there's going to be a Donald Trump biopic coming out. Who's playing him? Uh, Sebastian Stan is going to be playing a young Donald Trump. What the fuck? So, you know, whatever. He's he's done some interesting sort of biographical stuff. He played Tommy Lee in a miniseries about him and Pamela Anderson. Yeah, I saw that. That was shit. Um, his portrayal of, of Tommy uh, Tommy Lee was pretty accurate. Um, but, yeah, I... I I mean, what's going to happen in a film about Donald Trump? I mean, it's not made for... It won't be made by or for the people that think he's great. And if it was, it would be unwatchable for anyone who actually has a love of, of film. So, But there it is. It's out there. Um, and one for 
anoraks like me and people who loved uh, you know films of the late 80s uh, the 4k remaster of james cameron's the abyss is finally here it's had a cinema release in the states it's going to be made it's it's being made available in america in 4k streaming on demand not quite here in the uk yet um, they're talking about it being made available on physical media sometime in March next year. We have been living off a very average-looking DVD of The Abyss for quite some time now. Seeing that in 4K is... I'm genuinely interested to see that. Um, so I'm quite excited, um, which is why it's, it's a, our reaction to that's up on the socials. Um, you've seen The Abyss, mate? Uh, I have not. No. Yeah, I mean, look, you like Cameron, and it's Cameron doing underwater stuff. So I, th- I think... I, I, I think you'll enjoy it when you do get around to seeing it. I, th- I think it's going to be quite prevalent next year. So we'll, I think I just suggest everybody looks out for it. Um, any other news stories caught your attention while I was rattling those off, mate? Um, no. Uh, I was going to talk about the Jonathan Majors thing because I did remember it. Um, and I'm, I noticed that it had kind of thrown a spanner in the works of some of the MCU things. but Yeah, he was going to be a lot more prominent in the Marvel but, films yeah. if that hadn't, hadn't happened, wouldn't he? But other than that, not really, no. Yeah, okay. All right, well, that's the news. The next thing we talk about is uh, new releases that are coming up. Uh, really from, we're going to be releasing this probably before Christmas. I don't know whether it's going to be the 23rd or the 24th, but it should be available to listen to while you're wrapping presents and, you know, defrosting turkeys and getting ready for, for the big day. Um, so let's say from December the 25th onwards, any new releases coming out from that day forward, uh, but what what new releases in and around the the Christmas period have caught your eye, mate? Um, you've caught me off guard there because I genuinely thought this was going to be a quiet month for releases around Christmas time. So you go first, and then I'll I'll try and chip. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, there is a musical version of the Color Purple coming out. I did see that. Fucking hell, that looks terrible. <sighs> Doesn't feel to me. I know that I know Les Miserables is about you know, poverty and revolution and a very profound book and they managed to make a successful show out of it. But I feel like The Colour Purple, I mean, maybe a remake because, you know, uh, there's a lot more powerful black people in Hollywood nowadays. And I I think Spielberg did the original story. You know, I think he gave it due respect, but maybe a new version with with black people at the helm of all parts of it would add more insights to the story. It doesn't feel like a musical. A musical on this? I mean, it's got, you know, themes of incest, abuse. It's just like, you know, I just, you know, I I, I don't see it myself. Um, the uh, new Michael Mann film about Ferrari with um, Adam Driver as Ferrari is out on the 25th. Um, That'll be good. The trailer looks really exciting. I, I couch this with all the caveats of look at all the films that um, Michael Mann's made since 2004. They've not been up to his, you know, the, his best um, but if he if he's returned to form here, then this could be really good because the trailer looks excellent. Um, let's have a look. What else is coming out? Um, some horror movies. Uh, some sort of Dracula trilogy is out. None of which really catches my eye. It is reasonably quiet. There's a Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard film called Memory coming out on January the fifth, um, where they she meets up with a. a a friend from a high school reunion and it uh, opens some doors to the past um i'm not sure that's my kind of film but it's got a terrific cast um what else are we looking at here the um musical of mean girls with john ham in the lead 
but don't get that at all. They're re-releasing Soul for some reason. Um, a horror film called Founders Day. I think you're right. It is a quiet month, mate. I've managed to find a, a couple. Um, obviously, there's the new Wonka film. Yeah, sorry, that's that's out at the moment. Probably people may be trying to fit that in with their film watching over the next couple of weeks when this comes out. So yeah, that that is a new release. There's a new M Night Shyamalan, M Night Shyamalan called "Leave the World Behind." Well, I think he's doing that thing where when he releases a hit, he'll say his names on the next one, and if he releases a shit one like old, yeah, or a "Knock at the Cabin," which didn't get well received, then he doesn't put his name on the next one. But it's um, oh, is that him? Leave the leave, world behind. Leave the world behind. Uh, made by Barack and Michelle Obama's media company. That has been getting the reviews have been a great idea, very poorly done. Well, it's got Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Mahershala Ali in it. Now, that's three very strong actors to have in a film. So if you can't, if the film's bad, you know what the problem is because they're all three tremendous. Um, Oscar winners and nominees there. Um, so if it, I if can't, it drops, I can't then... see, I can't see his name on the credits of that though for some reason. It's directed by a group called Sam Esmail. That's not a. Um, uh, Maybe this article's got its wires mixed up because I've just found uh, ten release. Maybe it's someone's just put Eminem Shyamalan, but it's not Eminem Shyamalan. I'm trying to um, see if he's not on the list of producers. It's got a long list of producers, but I don't see his name on it. Maybe this, maybe that's, maybe this has just got its wires crossed. Um, I mean, it's therefore when, when I, my wires. When I when I see the the summary, um, great idea, poor execution. I completely believed you when you said it was M Night Shyamalan because that's yeah. so on brand for him. But no, that's apparently it's based on quite a popular book. It's an interesting idea that. Um, uh, People think some sort of apocalyptic event has happened because all the technology goes down and it starts to lead to the breakdown to society because we're so dependent on everything from Wi-Fi to kind of guidance systems in our cars. Um, and then, you know, other other things unfold in the story. But it's got very mixed reviews, let's say. Yeah, okay. That's my bad. That's me being confused by this article. Um, another one's called Rebel Moon by Zack Schneider. Yeah, that Sophia is... Sophia Jimon Honsu, and Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, is that now, getting a cinema release? Or is that no, straight to it stream? it looks like it's straight on Netflix, 22nd of December. It's apparently very Star Wars-y, very swashbuckling. Yeah, isn't the isn't the genesis of this that Zack Snyder wanted to do a Star Wars film? They told him they weren't interested, so he went and did well, his own kind of film in that genre, like space opera, basically. No. What actually happened was is that he went to Lucasfilm and said, I want to do a Seven Samurai-style epic set in the Star Wars universe. And ah. Lucasfilm went, I'm interested. And he went, but it won't have any of the main characters in it. And they went, no. Because yeah. obviously Lucasfilm want to sell that merchandise. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I'm going to watch this. I would not go to the cinema to see a Zack Snyder film because I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the guy. But he has released some films with some of my favourite moments mm -hmm. in any films I've seen, particularly in Watchmen. And 300's just great if you just want to stick a film on and watch a bunch of uh, murderous Persians get stabbed. But, yeah, I, I would probably swerve that if it was in the cinema. Well, it's got it's it. got Charlie Hunnam in, which is um, not a recommendation as far well, as I'm Well, no, hold on. Hold on. Have you seen The Gentleman? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the better films that he's in. He's in Children no. of Men, which is a great film. So he doesn't always, I, it's not always, it doesn't always mean you shouldn't watch a film with Charlie Hunnam's in it. 
I think Charlie Hunnam's been shit in some films, but ever since The Gentleman, I've been a bit of a fan of Charlie Hunnam. Um, well, maybe I'll give it another chance then, because I thought it was okay. The Gentleman? Yeah. No, I love The Gentleman. Maybe I need to give it another go. The bit where he's getting the phone back from the little uh, chavs. Mm. You must have you must have resonated with that living in London. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I should I should give it another go. It's like let's keep going through these. Just I don't want to get hung up. Yeah, on the, they're releasing Rebel Moon in two parts, by the way. One before Christmas, one sometime next year. Cool. Uh, Wonka. We've spoken about the new Aquaman. Don't go see that. Just don't. I th- I'm pretty sure Amber Heard's still in it, so that can fuck off. Um, the now this is a film I saw a trailer for this um, The Iron Claw have you seen that trailer? no tell me about The Iron Claw so I think it's by A24 it is about the Von Erich wrestling family so it has Zac Efron who has had a bit of a Efronissance since yeah. um, High School Musical he's been in some shit but I, quite, I think he's quite good I, th- I, th- I think White. he's very good if the film's good so I, I'm, I'm I'm listening I'm interested if the film's good but the director's also good because I think he was a very good choice to play Ted Bundy but that Ted Bundy film was it film series or whatever yeah. it was yeah that was that was shit um it's got Jeremy Allen White from I don't know if you've seen it on Disney The Bear I've heard about him yeah I recognize his photograph yeah, I think yeah. he's from he's from Shameless uh, the US Shameless that's yeah. very good The Bear I need to get back into yeah. watching that I've seen, he's um, got. I see Harris Dickinson's in it. I've seen him in a couple of things. I like him as well. But it's um, it's got Lily James playing Zac Efron's wife. That looks. Um, I really want to see that. Yeah, uh, interesting. And that is December. coming out. When is that coming out? Twenty second of December. Twenty second of December. Canada, so maybe January for the UK. Yeah, yeah. We'll keep. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. Um, American fiction. Jeffrey Wright stars as an author who's being who's tired of being sidelined just because he is black. To make matters more frustrating, other black authors are getting the sales and awards he covets, but only if they write violent, barely literate accounts of ghetto life. Yeah. As a bitter joke, he bashes out that kind of novel himself under a pseudonym and suddenly becomes a bestseller. Oh, I like it. I like it. Twenty uh, second of December in the US, so again, probably January find out for when. Us. Yeah, find out when here. Yeah, I think I don't know if we've already spoken about this, but the boy in the heron, the Hayumi is Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Ghibli. yeah, that's yeah. The, 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 it's um, it's a new Ghibli, and it's Miyazaki. Sort of, he's not done anything for ten years, and I think Ghibli missed him, and now he's back. And that's yeah, that's getting good reviews. That is, I'm not a big fan of that Ghibli stuff. I like Spirited Away, but I've, I don't know. I th- the other stuff gave me a bit of a headache. But if you like that stuff, I imagine it'll be right mm-hmm. up your street. It'll probably yeah. be like a seven or eight out of ten. Yeah. Um, this one is called. Eileen or Aileen, um, adapted from the award-winning novel by Otessa Moshfe. Moshfe. Yeah, that's um, Anne Hathaway and um, Thomas and Thomas McKenzie. Yeah. In a liberating lesbian romance, so take your granny to go see that one. So Anne Hathaway described it as Carol, the um, that Patricia Highsmith thing they did a couple of years ago with Kate Blanchett, mixed with Reservoir Dogs. So it's not just. I, I think it's very much don't take your granny to it. Definitely. Take, if it's got lesbian romance in it, take your fucking granny. This is an order. Um, now, this one... Oh, so this is by the guy who did the favourite, Yorgos Lanthimos's... Yorgos Lanthimos, yeah. Lanthimos. Poor Things with Emma Stone. I think that photo has got... That's Mark Ruffalo. Um, it is... Oh, I'm trying to find Yeah, it. that's had some awards buzz, actually. Apparently it's very funny... Um, it's about a woman who's brought back to life in Victorian London by Willem Dafoe, who plays a mad scientist. Excellent. 
Um, no memories of her previous existence. She sits on. She sets off on a riotous tour of Europe, breaking hearts and conventions wherever she goes. That's getting good reviews. And the last one on this list is Anselm. Have you heard of this? No, tell me. I don't even know what this is trying to tell me. This is about. It follows the life and work of Anselm Kiefer, the German artist. Okay. I don't know what this is. I think this is a bit of a weird one. I think it's just showing his art, but they've like filmed it in like live locations. Oh, is it like a bit of an art piece? Yeah, it's it's yeah. got him. It, it must be a documentary or. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'll tell you why people are talking about this because it's a documentary with, about the guy with the guy in it and showing his art. It's directed by Vim Vendors, who is a, a bit of a sort of an indie darling. He's been making films for about forty years now. So it's not just, it's not just a oh we're pointing we're going to point a camera. It got all sorts of festival awards that everybody loves Vim Vendors on the festival circuit. That's why, that's why that's getting a um, like prominent uh, place in the adverts. Right, so what we're saying is, um, go see the lesbian film with your granny, um, <laughs> and nothing else. Uh, the Jeffrey Wright thing. I'm interested in the Jeffrey Wright thing. Oh, American you can fiction. watch that film, but you have to go see the lesbian Reservoir Dogs with your granny and maybe your mum too, or your, <laughs> or your auntie, or just an elderly woman that you see on the street. Just say, do you want to go to the cinema? Yeah. All right. Let's not be accessories to any form of disorder or crime there, but. <laughs> Kidnapping old ladies and taking them to watch. No, don't fucking to kidnap her for fuck's sake. <laughs> Lure her in with some fucking humbugs at least, like lead a little trail to her seat. Uh, uh, sake, a little, tra- fucking... little trail of Werther's originals into City Hall. <laughs> she can't bend down because her hip's gone. <laughs> fuck's sake. Yahoo! Okie dokie. Yeah, so, yeah, you're right. I think it is a quiet month, but if you look, there's some interesting stuff, isn't there? Yeah, there's, it's not like a, you know, Christmas time, there's usually a big Christmas film with two kind of B-list actors, but it's getting all the buzz, and then there's usually a Star Wars or a Marvel film kicking about this time of year, but this year it seems like there, there's just kind of movies. Wonka's probably the kind of, it's not blockbuster, but it's by the guys who did Paddington, so it's probably going to make a lot of money, it'll be a, a heartwarming kind of funny film. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, I, I, I kind of want them to pull it off because I've got so much goodwill for them on Paddington. Um, I'm I'm skeptical about whether we needed a Wonka prequel, but let's see. Um, yeah. Speaking of like that kind of sort of B-list Christmas film, there is a film called Candy Cane Lane Out that's on Prime at the moment, which is getting terrible reviews. Um, is it like a horror? That sounds like a horror title. No, it's it's it. It's an Eddie Murphy Christmas film. It's like oh, for fuck's sake. it's like you know. Look, it might it might be all right. Eddie Murphy. You see, I remember when Eddie Murphy was the absolute fucking god of the box office and the funniest thing ever. And everybody my age just thought he was the absolute nuts because he walked in, he was smarter and faster talking, and was like flipping society on its head. And he was just a complete fucking hero. And it's always a little bit sad when someone's later career comes nowhere near that. Do you know what I mean? Um, but look, if it's good, it's good. It, the the picture is him grinning in a Christmas jumper, so it could go anywhere. It could go anywhere from there. Do you know what I mean? It's not uh, going to be him fast talking his way into a um, steal some bearer bonds and shove Stephen Burkhoff's face into some food. Do you know what I mean? So we'll see. I I don't know why he keeps making these shit films. So uh, there was an interesting um, interview that I watched. I think it was Chris Rock and maybe like another one of his pals that he did grown ups with, and they said. It makes me really sad that Adam Sandler doesn't do stand up because he's actually funny, mm-hmm. and he's really funny. I bet I bet he would be funny because he does songs as well. He used to be because either on SNL or something else, he used to do really good comedy so- songs as well. 
So he could do stand up and music. He could he could he could you know he could be like the you know American Bill Bailey. I'm not, all right, the American Bill Bailey is stretching because Bill, Bill Bailey plays like fifty musical instruments, but he could do comedy songs as well as like tell jokes. Well, you know, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Eddie Murphy should do the same thing. Um, just stick to the stand up man. And yeah. he nearly won an Oscar for Dreamgirls, and then there was the whole scandal of you. Was it cheating on his wife with someone or whatnot? Or was it was it a bit more kind of controversial than that? But he, he was caught. He was caught um, uh, curb crawling for Lady Boys. Oh. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't do things by halves, does he? Okay, <laughs> take your granny to see that one. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, that that was my point. Eddie Murphy, stop making films. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, because it's Christmas, a lot of people's watching is going to be watching the classic Christmas films. Um, Elf, get it Elf, watched. Elf is definitely getting watched. Galaxy Quest, even though it's not Christmas film, is a bit of a Christmas tradition in our house. We're going to be watching that. Maybe Christmas Vacation, definitely Die Hard. Um, any other Christmas films on your list, mate? Um, what's the one with the Nazis in the snow? Uh, Dead Snow. That one? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's very Christmassy. <laughs> Well, it's corpses coming back to life, and Jesus, you know, whoa. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Jesus was technically a zombie. Um, although that's more of an <laughs> Easter theme. whoa. <laughs> that's more of an Easter theme, though. Um, I do, I do like. There's a brilliant line in Dead Snow where it's all gone quiet and they don't know where they are, and um, it says, "Where are they?" And someone says, "Well, maybe they're on the outside toilet eating what's left of Lars." <laughs> it always makes me laugh. But yeah, get your get your Christmas classics watched. Uh, you know, over a hot drink and some food. That's uh, that, you know, we, that, that's what we'll be doing. Christmas time. Very good. Now we talk about the new and uh, notable films that we've watched since the last time we recorded a Double Reel monthly episode. Um, it includes things we've seen at the cinema or streamed or just notable things that we've seen recently. James, what new films or notable films have you watched lately? So I don't think I spoke about this on the last one. I remember when we recorded it last, you were about to watch the new Hunger Games film. Right, so I can talk about it now. Yes. Um, yes, I went to see the new Hunger Games prequel. Um, the day Ballad, of, Ballad of Snakes and... Whatever. So, Songbirds and, and snakes. snakes, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I really, really, really liked it. Yeah? I thought it was excellent. I thought it was... I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I I really enjoyed the films of the Hunger Games universe. I thought the the Mockingjay films were a bit weak, but... But the final two. Yeah, they weren't the best, but see if you just sit back and try and just watch the films and just try and, you know, just get into the universe and the kind of setting they're trying to tell you don't need to watch it like roger ebert and you know that kind of thing where you're trying to analyze it and that mm-hmm. kind of style of it and i thought this was yeah up there i thought it was really really good i thought it had some really dry funny moments um i thought it had some really good performances um from let me get the actors names up because they're all relative well, apart from the likes of peter dinklage the two Harry leads Davis. are young and new aren't they well, I'm pretty sure the female lead was uh, in West Side Story. Yes, that's right. I do remember that. Um, let me just... Yeah, so Rachel Zegler, she's very good. That's she, right, yeah. She plays a sort of like fiery southern belle kind of... Well, not southern belle, but like southern girl who gets drafted into the Hunger Games and gets mentored by um, Coriolanus Snow, who's 
played by Donald Sutherland in the uh, the Hunger Games films. Yeah, the main series. Yeah, Tom Blythe. He is uh, he's English and he's been in not many big films. He was in um, he was in that Robin Hood film when he played Feral Child. But yeah, he's been in a lot of TV stuff. Uh, he was, I think it was something called Scott and Sid. Um, nothing massive. So this is sort of like his really big break. Yeah. But no, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really dark. I thought it was uh, it was interesting to see. It it shows you a little bit of, I think it's called Pan-M, I think is what they call yeah. the world. Yeah. It shows you a bit of that before the Hunger Games. And it just sort of shows what life was like back then and how... It's not like, when, obviously when you see the Jennifer Lawrence era, it's like very high-tech, very fancy, very fascist, very totalitarian. Um, but back then it was there was still a lot of like rebel attacks and it wasn't thriving. It has a sort of like, yeah. has a sort of communist kind of feel to it in a sense. Mm, interesting. Where it was, it's very 1950s and, you know, although like there's people in control at the top, it still feels like the country's kind of in bits. Yeah. Um. But no, I thought it was really, really good performances. Um. No, not going to win any Oscars, but if you go to watch it for what it's there for, you you'll enjoy it. Um. I felt what I what I was really impressed by is that I felt like they told about four hours of storytelling and only about two hours and twenty minutes. Oh well, that's that. I mean, it, it sometimes it's better that way, isn't it? If you feel like it, because then it feels pacey, doesn't it? Yeah, so I don't know how they did it, but it starts with a very young Coriolanus Snow and his sister or cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, just being told that it's not a massive spoiler because you get told within the first two minutes. Basically, it's the start of the it's the kind of the war that basically gets them to set up the Hunger Games. Yeah, and um, they it's his his father. Um, dies and they're kind of left destitute. His dad was like a kind of general, and he's he gets mm-hmm. killed by the rebels, and he's basically left on his own. He's living in poverty, and he's trying to get like a scholarship, um, through this mentorship program at the university in like uh, the capital. Um, so I thought it was really it was really good that they managed to kind of tell all of these things very quickly. It then goes to, um, the reaping where they pick the candidates, and then it introduces the two kind of leads, and they're obviously now th- this is blah, blah, blah. this is the first Hunger Games, yeah. No, it's the tenth. Oh, it's the tenth, is it? I sort of somehow had it in my mind that this was the first ever oh, one. No, yeah. the, Hunger, the Hunger Games is is a thing already by now, yeah. Right. So yeah, so it, it's about ten years after they've decided to introduce the Hunger Games. Yeah. But it's the way that the the story kind of goes very like they're telling loads of things. So then they have an actual Hunger Games, and I thought, okay, so he's mentoring her in the Hunger Games, and then I thought, oh, okay, and then once the Hunger Games finished and the, the results of that happened, I thought. Oh, so that's the end of the film. Then I, I've I've sort of enjoyed that. And then after that, there's like another forty five minutes to an hour. Wow. Of story after that. Yeah. When maybe I, not I, that much. Maybe thirty five, but it felt like a lot. And it talks about. I can tell you it if you don't if you don't want to see it, or I can try and tell you it without. Spoilers. Yeah, try and tell it without spoilers for the benefit of the audience, because it might give people a thought to go and see it themselves right. if they haven't watched it. So I'll try and tell us about spoilers. So he, he mentors his 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 District 12 girl in the Hunger Games, he gets in a bit of trouble for the way he's been kind of trying to do some uh, jiggery-pokery, some yeah. skullduggery. So he gets in trouble, he gets punished, and he actually gets sent out to the district. Yeah. That's me trying to not exploit too much. Sure. And then when he's out there, it tells a lot more about his story and, like, you know, because when you look at Donald Sutherland, you think, oh, this guy's always been in charge. Straight, straight up villain, right? Yeah, he's always been the boy since, you know, he must have been in charge, like, you know, 
in charge of this regime for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. It's 64 years before he eventually dies in the Hunger Games, what is it, Mockingjay Part 2. So you think, you when you look at Donald Sutherland, you think, all oh, right, this big old guy in these fancy clothes and that, you think, oh, well, he's always been in charge. But it actually tells you a little bit more about his kind of upbringing and like his kind of young, rash sense. Yeah. Um, and I thought that it was really good. Um, there's obviously some weak bits. There's a couple of cringy bits in it where I'm sort of like, this is a bit awkward. But you're always going to get that these kind of films but it was yeah. um yeah it was really good i thought it told a load of story and um it really it really shows you how president snow becomes president snow in this film and i thought that would be a lot harder to do because obviously you can't tell how someone basically becomes you know hunger games hitler yeah um by just you know but through one film so they're obviously i don't know if they're going to do more um after it or if it's just going to be a sort of standalone by itself but yeah i thought it was really good i really enjoyed it yeah because um, i mean what they it, it's there's always a risk and people will find out how they've done on this with, with wonka as well that when you do a prequel and you kind of know what turn how things turn out that there's a like limited value now there are some great prequels out there like um, x-men first class but you've got to kind of get it right with your story don't you so they've introduced it sounds like they've introduced enough characters and enough events for you to get to the end without really knowing quite how it's going to pan out and you still have suspense and everything. So it sounds like they've done a job there. So fair play to them, right? Yeah, it didn't make as much as obviously the other Hunger Games did. Um, but I thought it was... Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, um, my partner who went to see it with me, she really enjoyed it as well. But mm-hmm. I think I'm one of a few people that actually enjoyed it. I don't think many people actually connected with it that much, which is strange. Yeah, but... which is a shame. But yeah... Sounds like they did everything they could. Um, well, fair play to them. Um, any others? Um, so I was on a, a very early shift at work, so I tried to go to my bed quite early. I ended up falling asleep at 5pm and woke up at about 11. And I thought, right, I'm not going to get back to sleep here. So before my work, I was just lying on the couch and I stuck on Fast X. All right, that's on... What service is that on at the moment? It was just on. Um, it was just on Sky, I think. All ah, right, so yeah, Sky on demand, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I watched that, and the I know these films are far fetched. I know they tried to make them. You know, I know that originally they were more about cars and that kind of thing, and um, bank heists. And I know we had to kind of suspend our disbelief when they had cars in space and mm-hmm. the Rock lifting up nuclear warheads with his bare fucking hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but. This one does take the fucking piss. Um, it, it, there's a bit where Vin Diesel is driving his Mustang and two helicopters fire sort of grapple hooks into his doors and start trying to lift his car off the motorway. Oh, dearie me. And they're obviously trying to get it to stop. Um, and obviously the power of a fucking helicopter compared to a Mustang, <laughs> two of them, don't yeah. rip the doors off. What ends up happening is that Vin Diesel uses the Mustang to catapult two helicopters at uh, Jason Momoa, who doesn't die. Um, <laughs> and Jason Momoa plays probably the most flamboyant and irritating bad guy that cinema has ever seen. Wow, that's but a I, statement. I couldn't help but watch him. It yeah. was very odd. I thought, I can't not watch this guy. But he's like, he does these things where he's got dead bodies and he's talking to them and he's trying to do all of his like technical hacking stuff and he's like having mimosas and painting his nails and all that kind of thing and he's wearing a bright pink dressing gown. Yeah. Which was, it was fun, but it also felt like they'd done it as like a bit. 
So Jason yeah. Momoa played Cal Drogo and he's Aquaman. He's this big, rugged, handsome Hawaiian man. So they've made and, him a lot more metrosexual this time. Yeah, and I think he had fun with it, but it was yeah. just, it felt like a really big, and yeah. I think the the word family is said about 75 times in the film. <laughs> Someone should do a supercut of that. Oh, it's fucking ridiculous. And Jason Momoa has like fucking missiles getting fired at Vin Diesel and Vin Diesel goes, you didn't take away my car and just mm. drives away. And it, yeah, it, it's it's part one of two, which I was oh, wow. absolutely delighted to know at the end uh, when they leave it on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if if you're into that kind of thing and it's on the telly, then yeah, by all means. It's basically it, turned but... into a superhero franchise, hasn't it? Basically, either the yeah. drivers or the cars have got superpowers now. Is basically what it is. Yeah, and I think they obviously make a lot of money, and Vin Diesel obviously has a lot of fun making them. Mm-hmm. We've had a spin-off as well with um, Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah. And this is going to be... The, the, I imagine this is the final one, number 11. So that's 12 mm-hmm. uh, Fast and Furious films that they've made. They've, and, they've probably squeezed um, as much as they're ever going to get out of it. By and I, I, I don't want to be that guy that says they should have just ended the franchise when Paul Walker passed away. I felt like they ended it really nicely with Fast and Furious 7. Yeah. Have you seen Fast and Furious 7? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're really Where, nice montage of him at the end. And the little kind of, they have a little barbecue in his honour at the end, don't they? And then they drive and like Vin Diesel drives one way and it's got the very the sad Charlie Puth Wiz Khalifa song. Yeah. I felt like they ended it quite nicely. And then they've made another four since then. Yeah. Five. So, yeah. It's obviously just a cash cow. But... I still enjoyed it more than any of the Marvel films that I've seen recently. Mm. Like, it's ridiculous and it's stupid. And they're, you know, driving through Rome and they managed to let a nuclear warhead off in the River Tiber mm-hmm. that only mildly damages the Vatican because Jesus. Yeah. Um, but yeah. All right, fair right. Um, I can try and find some of the other things I've watched uh, while you have a little... All right, I'll have a chat through some of the ones I've watched and, uh, yeah, you chip in if you uh, come up with some more. Um, The first thing I went to see at the cinema was Dream Scenario, which was... It's a Nicolas Cage film, which is about a man. He's a professor. He's a bit frustrated. Everyone else seems to be publishing work and getting recognition where he isn't. He seems to be like a little, you know, just a bystander of uh, in his own life. And he starts to appear in other people's dreams. First, people he knows, which is less surprising. Then all of his students, which, you know, a bit weird and got to be careful. But then he starts to appear in the dreams of thousands of people, people around the world. Loads and loads of people have seen him and he goes viral. He becomes famous, uh, you know, by accident. He's on television, not for being a professor of this particular brand of of, uh, whatever he does. Um, it's like uh, I think it's like herd herd behavior, uh, uh, how it, you know scientifically explains psychology and stuff. So he's he doesn't know whether to cash in on his fame to become like a like a an influencer or to try and cash in on his fame to try and get his book published, which he's not really written. And then he um, it's a it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, the idea is that he's invading other people's dreams. Um, and it takes all sorts of weird and dark turns. You know, women are attracted to him because he's appeared in their dreams. Uh, people want him to be a, you know, to sponsor products because he's been in their dreams. Um, and then the dreams start to get a bit weird and sinister. He starts to do bad things in people's dreams and he starts getting the blame for that, even though he hasn't done anything. And it's it's a really interesting exploration in that way of things like, uh, you know, viral fame, 
cancel culture, all of these things. Um, it for a great idea, it doesn't quite. Um, it's got some hilarious scenes, and Nicolas Cage is absolutely superb. It's one of his best performances because he's really good at playing this kind of kind of ineffectual guy who suddenly starts to appear, and he obviously then has to play different versions of himself as he appears in people's dreams and stuff. Um, but it doesn't. It kind of throws some of the ideas away a little bit. There's lots of big tonal shifts. Then it takes the story off in a whole new direction, which goes a bit Black Mirror at the end, which doesn't quite work. Um, I enjoyed it, but it could have been a classic rather than just an intriguing idea, which is very good at times. Like there's some stuff that happened in the third act, which hasn't even been mentioned before. I think if they if they tried to kind of tie the idea together a little better. I mean, when I saw it, I thought this is going to be like Charlie Kaufman, like being John Malkovich and stuff like that. And the difference is that someone like Charlie Kaufman is such a great writer that he, he takes this fascinating idea and he properly develops and properly takes the story where it's meant to go. Um, which can be wild and weird places. I mean, the ending of being John Malkovich is fucking insane, but he's kind of, he's played the the, the idea through. This is fine, but it could have been great. Um, Nicolas Cage is very good. He's by far the best thing in it. Um, but apart from some very good moments, it doesn't quite come off as an idea. But very interesting, very interesting idea. If you like this sort of weird offbeat stuff, it's worth watching. But I think if you're like me, you'll get to the end and think, oh, that, that, that could have been an amazing film, but it was only quite good. But, you know, it was fine. Uh, has that given you some time to, to see some other stuff that you did? Yeah, I actually haven't watched that much other than the features in those two this month. I, I watched the Kevin Bridges um, latest stand-up special, but that's not really a film. So. Oh, what, oh, what's that on, by the way? Uh, it was... Uh, I got a voucher. Um, basically, if you play Xbox and you, uh, you you get new games or you complete achievements, you get... Ah, right, all right. So it's not on Netflix or something. So now and again, I get enough for a, a £5 voucher. So I, I just redeemed my £5 voucher to rent it. So. Oh, right. Okay. Right. I'll, I'll look um, out for that when it's on Netflix or whatever. Because yeah, I, I, I do... He's fantastic stand-up. Uh, it's masterful. It's brilliant. He films it in Cork. And he's mm -hmm. just... Um, it's just it's just watching like a guy who's been doing it for 20 years just master at work. Yeah, yeah. Just he's one brilliant. of the best people working in stand-up right now. Absolutely, it was tremendous. Okay, well, I've got some more. Uh, I, uh, my second trip to the cinema was to see Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which obviously is the, you know, formed the theme of this whole thing. There was a point where I weren't sure if this film was even going to be released this year because of the strikes. Um, but thankfully, the uh, the actors and the writers got a decent settlement, so we were able to, you know, carry go back and see some films. Um, this is Ridley Scott's uh, interpretation of the Napoleon story, uh, succeeding where other people have failed in terms of making the film. He's a, he's a big Kubrick fan. I think he would have been fascinated by the fact that Kubrick tried to make a Napoleon film uh, and and didn't quite manage it. Um, now, what what you get is you get a two and a half, two hour, 40 minute version of the story. And apparently he's going to do a four hour version on um, uh, Apple TV plus, which, which is by design. This is unlike things like Blade Runner and kingdom of heaven, where we had kind of theatrical versions of films forced on them. They didn't want to make by all accounts, the, the theatrical release is his idea and his work. And he's just realized that on streaming, you know, you can show a four-hour film and you don't have anyone going, oh, Christ, people aren't going to sit in the cinema for that long. It's like, well, stick it on for four hours. Um, 
and you get the it starts with Napoleon in uh, as a, a a captain a young captain in in the French army during the revolutionary wars um the the terror is in full swing so the people in charge of the French revolution have started turning on people there are royalist uprisings there's a lot of discontent inside France and also the other crowned heads of Europe have decided that they're not going to stand for a king being removed so the French and the Austrians and and possibly the Russians are all sort of attacking uh, France and the, the, the British have got a garrison. They've taken over the harbour in Toulon. He earns his stripes winning a battle there and he rises to power um, and becomes the Napoleon we've heard of. The Revolutionary Wars become the Napoleonic Wars and it's all about his sort of uh, campaigns in charge of France. At the same time and in parallel, it tells the story of him meeting and falling in love with Josephine and the strange directions that their relationship goes in. Um, now, there's been a lot of discussion of this film and I think the majority of the criticisms of this film stem from people not getting the Napoleon film they wanted. There has been some discussion of, you know, the fact that some of the this relationship with uh, with Napoleon is kind of funny. Napoleon Josephine's relationship is like funny. People say, oh, it's more like a carry-on film. Um, I, it's, I think it's intentional by Ridley Scott to say, you know, if this was all kind of an epic Michael Mann, you know, like the way he did kind of Last of the Mohicans and Ali, where all he is is like this epic, it's not going to come to life. It's like they make each other laugh. They have strange, you know, they have fights at the dinner table and throw things at each other. And I, and I think he just, he's trying to bring a relationship to life where you don't really know what went on behind closed doors exactly. And he's trying to bring that relationship to life. But all of the other criticisms are, oh, I wanted to see more on the Battle of Waterloo, or there's not enough on the internal politics and Napoleon, or, you know, you, you know, you, you don't get enough of this, you don't get enough of that. And I think that's a feature of literally every Napoleon film ever made, because Napoleon was um, central to, like, 25 years, not just of French history, but European history. He changed France internally in, in profound ways. He had all the battles... The, the changes to the monarchy, he's linked to the French Revolution, he's linked to the rest, you know, the Treaty of Vienna, which had like a century's worth of, 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 of lasting after effects in, in, in history. It is literally not possible to do a film about Napoleon, which is going to give everybody what they want when they come in to sit and see it. And the thing is, I mean, no series. You could do four series of, of, a, of a series on Napoleon and that wouldn't give everybody what they want because a TV series isn't going to give you the full grandeur of the battles you know, whatever they say, and maybe it won't fully go into everything about Napoleon. So what Ridley Scott's done is that he's focused on the uh, the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine and how that reflects upon Napoleon's own relationship with France and his political campaigns, because he saw that as the only way that you could do in one film an aspect of Napoleon. And there are other aspects of Napoleon. There's a film all about just the Battle of Waterloo, which doesn't give you really much of the context leading up to it. But if you want to see the Battle of Waterloo in more detail, there is a film about that. So you kind of have to see any film about Napoleon. They did one with Marlon Brando as Napoleon. They've done series about the various things. You kind of have to see it as like, this is one side of it. You'll never get the full side of the story in one. So it's about whether you like the one you get from Ridley Scott here. Now, Personally, I think Ridley Scott has completely succeeded as what, what he intended here. I think you can do the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine in one film. Now, of course, the thing about this is, if you did a story of Napoleon and Josephine, directed by Ridley Scott, and didn't have any of the battles, you think, what the fuck's going on? Where is the spectacle? Where is the scale? Where is what happened in Europe? So you get the historical events as well. And I think what Ridley Scott's actually done very, very cleverly is that the way Napoleon's relationship develops with Josephine and the way Napoleon's relationship with develops with France they're parallels of each other 
and how historically accurate that is in in its detail I mean, we don't know exactly what it, what went on all the time between Napoleon and Josephine I think it's a very very good way to reflect that because when people meet in the 1790s or whatever it is, especially prominent people, someone who's about to become the leader of France and a woman who's an aristocrat, you know, Josephine's from an aristocratic family. She's been locked up. She's lost her fortune. She's very conscious of the fact that France could change, turn on a sixpence any minute, and she could be back in prison again. People don't date for a couple of years and then move in together, see how it goes, and then get married, right? They get married, and then they start having a relationship. That's how things happened back then. So you get this interesting thing about Napoleon. He, he gets to marry Josephine, but then he has to win her. Because aristocrats back then went, well, I mean, we marry because we have to strategically, maybe we're going to take a lover. But Napoleon's not fucking standing for that. He's not standing for Josephine having lovers on the side. He breaks off his campaign from, from Egypt, goes back, and Josephine comes home one day, see all her luggage on the lawn, and she's locked out of the front door. So Josephine's like, oh, God, this guy's different. You also see him be this really clumsy person in the bedroom compared to this masterful guy on the battlefield. But at the same time, he is he wins power in France. He takes over. He becomes an emperor. He wasn't an emperor to begin with. So France had to be won over. The European powers had to be won over. He had to go and take it by force what he had as emperor of France, uh, rightly or wrongly. So it's a really interesting parallel where over time, he wins Josephine over and she he's basically, you know, her be all and end all, but he isn't at the start. And in France, he's just a captain in the army, but by the end of it, he is the new Julius Caesar. And I think what they've done in the film is a really, really interesting parallel of that. Um, Whacking Phoenix is very good. It's not his best performance. Vanessa Kirby is amazing as Josephine. She's fucking fantastic. And she's a really good animatic character. And when you've got her as almost a, if she's a symbol of France, she represents how he won. Because you can't go into all, all the detail of what Napoleon did in France. He reorganized the school system, right? He reintroduced slavery to the country. He did all of this stuff in his domestic policy. You can't do that in the film. But what you can do is you can show the dynamic changing with Josephine and the dynamic changing of France, which is what he does. And you get the key moments in history. You get the Battle of Toulon, which is brilliant. You see his horse get killed and you see the way he wins that battle. You get um, Austerlitz, which is one of the best battle scenes fucking ever filmed. It's one of the best battle scenes ever, ever seen where the cannibals start going through the ice. It's just it's just stunning. And you see him try and win, like, like have peace treaties, but none of the other crowned heads like respect him because who's this jumped up prick he, who does he think he is so he makes himself an emperor and then you've got this strange spectacle of someone looking like a roman emperor in early 19th century europe everyone else is a king or queen with their kind of curls and all of that stuff and he looks like fucking caesar and he just looks so different so you always get this stuff and you get the the retreat from moscow moscow burning stunning Battle of Waterloo, stunning. Some people have said, oh, you know, it's not enough of one thing, not enough of the other. I think what Ridley Scott's done works as a two and a half hour film, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I, you know, I don't think all of it works. I think some of the stuff between him and uh, and Josephine is like, well, they had to, you know, some of it, you know, they improvised it, try and reflect it. But the overall arc, where the direction goes, where suddenly it's about his responsibilities as emperor and his relationship with Josephine is going to suffer. And then how their lives kind of intersect and dissect and come back together. Really beautifully done. Masterful battles. And maybe maybe people don't like this film. Maybe they think it's flawed. But I think the way to judge this film is look at how many people didn't manage to make a Napoleon film work at all. Um, mm -hmm. But I thought this was really, really good. I remember you saying, oh, they've portrayed Whacking Phoenix as a, as a simp. 
that's just something I saw someone complain about. That was not my, I've not seen it yet. But the like, the, the, the thing is, at, so. at the beginning, Josephine doesn't really rate him and takes a lover as soon as he goes off for a campaign in Egypt. And 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 people can go, oh, well, maybe he's like being kind of uh, led through the nose or played by Josephine. But that was what relationships were like back then. And I think it's really interesting that his reaction to that is really kind of forceful. And they have this weird dynamic with each other, you know? And I think it, it works because it was she was the only thing that completely enthralled him. Everyone else kind of fell before him until he kind of just couldn't win his final battle. But he was enthralled to this person. It's just really fascinating to explore that. I, I think it's really good. I think it's a really good film. Um, aside from that, um, and obviously we were talking more about Ridley Scott later. Aside from that, I watched a couple of 2023 releases on streaming um, just to kind of catch up with things that came out this year. I watched Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, no, I didn't fancy it. It's it's all right. Jake Gyllenhaal plays a U.S. Army sergeant in Afghanistan and um, Dar Salim plays his interpreter, you know, a local Afghan who's, you know, the idea is they work for the Americans because if they do well, they'll get a visa to leave the country. But in, in doing so, they become public enemy number one to the Taliban. And this guy saves Jake Gyllenhaal's life in a battle uh, in quite sort of high-profile circumstances. So the Taliban want to punish him, so he has to go into hiding. Jake Gyllenhaal is medevaced home, only to find out that the bureaucracy is going to take months and months, if it ever happens at all, to get this guy and his family the visa. He's not going to stand for it. So he goes back to Afghanistan to get him out himself. And it's well... It's like competently made. Guy Ritchie films recently have always looked very good and very glossy and everything else competently handled. Um, but it's just a weird tone because on the one hand, it's trying to be like a fairly serious-minded and fairly realistic depiction of the modern war in Afghanistan. But then once he decides to go back and rescue the guy, it's like it, it might as well just be Rambo, you know? It's like, let's go and get him. It's what It just turns into like an adventure movie. Uh, the music is really shit. The score is terrible, by the way. Um, but, but Jake Gyllenhaal's good. Dar Salim is good. It's all right. I mean, for a for a straight to streaming Amazon film, it's pretty good, right? But it's kind of it's it's fine. Um, I couldn't say I hated it, and there is some good stuff in it. A couple of good battle scenes. Um, I'm not sure what any of this says about Guy Ritchie's career. You know, he's had that early splash with Snatch and Lockstock. He lost his way when he married Madonna. He could have learned that lesson from Sean Penn. He tried to do those bigger versions of Snatch and Lockstock, like Revolver and, and Rock and Roller, which didn't quite work. But then he came back with the Sherlock Holmes films, which did well. But then he tried to repeat the trick with Man from Uncle and King Arthur, and they both flopped. I mean, I quite like Man from Uncle, but, you know, didn't find an audience. Um, but he does that live-action remake of Aladdin, which isn't very good, but it does what Disney wants, right? And then he does a couple of films, Wrath of Man and the Gentleman, which are both hits. And people go, oh, look, Guy Ritchie's managed to find a more modern, grown-up way of doing the Guy Ritchie thing. And you think, all right, maybe you'll start doing doing that. But then he goes and does these two streaming-only films for Amazon, which are really quite average. I, I don't know what he's doing with his career. Um, his next film is about World War II espionage and the SOE with a great cast that's coming out next year. So I don't know. I, I honestly don't know where Guy Ritchie's going. And this film was just felt a bit like him treading water. Do you know what I mean? Okay. I might give it a watch because I do quite like Guy Ritchie. It's almost like a guilty pleasure, though. I feel like it's a bit harsh to call him a guilty pleasure because he does make quite good films. His films look Nothing good, amazing, look but... good and competently made. And, you know, when he finds the right thing, they're really good. Um, this is all right. It's all right. It's a perfectly decent way to spend a couple of hours. Um, but I think, you're, you're, I, th I think you'll find the tone a bit odd. And the music, honestly, the music's fucking terrible. <laughs> 
it's just it's never toned. Like if if Hans Zimmer's kid like composed a film like this for a movie, he'd disown him, right? It's really, really badly done. Um, mm. uh, other than That's that, strange. I saw a film called Infinity Pool, directed by Brandon Cronenberg. So this to David. He is the son of David Cronenberg, and he's decided to, to pick up the legacy and do weird, twisted body horror sci-fi, um, which I'm well up for. If you're a fan of David Cronenberg, the, the idea that well, David Cronenberg might make one more film and then retire, go you know buy a fishing boat or something. The fact that a member of his family sort of carrying on the business uh, is a good thing, but obviously that creates expectations, right? The fact that he's David Cronenberg's son opened doors for him, but then people are going to compare his stuff to David Cronenberg, right? It's not like he's gone off to do different kinds of films. He's doing films in a very similar genre to his dad, so you're always going to compare them. Um, this is an intriguing premise that reminded me of The White Lotus. Basically, this sort of blocked writer played by Alexander Skarsgård uh, and his wife are on holiday in this resort in a, a country that's kind of backward but like provides really luxury holidays. Um, and you're supposed to stay on the resort, but they go off and get in a bit of trouble and they meet this, um, this group of people who go there. And that the premise is that if you commit a crime in this really kind of country, the way everything else, everything that you'd like to do is a crime, basically, um, you can, you, there's a death sentence. But if you're rich and foreign, you can pay for a clone to be um, executed in your in your place. Okay. And what that means is that these people have become kind of thrill seekers who'll go out and deliberately commit crimes because they know they can just pay for their clone to be executed for them. And they kind of get off on watching themselves get killed and stuff like that. And then they carry on. And these people get increasingly depraved. This pulls absolutely no punches. Uh, Mia Goth plays one of the characters in it. She's basically the new queen of horror. And from this, I can see that what happens with Mia Goth is that her agent calls her up and says, I've got another script. It's really fucked up. And she says, well, if it's really fucked up, I'll do it. Uh, she's terrific, um, and obviously she is absolutely game for like proper horror and you know weird shit. Um, uh, it's another one where the intriguing premise isn't fully developed. It's good but not great. It doesn't really elevate the material. I understand his previous film Possessor is much better, so I'm going to give that a go. Like I say, it's a double-edged sword being Brown and Cronenberg. If you're going to do films like your dad's, I think his dad would have taken this in more interesting directions than he would have done. Um, it's fine if you like a bit of sci-fi body horror. I know you don't. I know you're, there's no chance of you watching this. Um, hmm. It's it's fine. And to be fair, this is only his third film, and Cronenberg wasn't Cronenberg after his third film. He, he developed into something you know more after that. So we'll see. He's He's got an interesting sensibility. This doesn't quite come off, I'd say. The other one I watched was um, Missing. Now, this is available on demand on Sky as well. Um, which I really enjoyed. It's an 18-year-old girl, the usual kind of late teen. She's about to go off to college. She's a bit distanced from her mum. You know, she doesn't answer the phone when her mum calls, finds her mum a bit embarrassing, blah, blah, blah. Her mum's off. You know, her dad died when she was little, and it's just her and her mum. And her mum goes on holiday to Colombia with her new boyfriend, uh, and they go missing. And the daughter takes it upon herself to try and find them you know, using all the means at her disposal, like, well, let's see if they got an Uber I can hack into my mum's account because I know her password. Let me see where she went. Let me see if I can find someone, you know, in there and, you know, try and get some CCTV from the hotel and stuff. And I guess the gimmick is that she does it all from a computer and phone and the film is exclusively shown on the screens that, that are being looked at. Now, I thought I was going to find that really annoying um, there's been a couple of films like that, like Unfriended and Host, and I didn't bother watching them because I'm not sure if I want to watch a film that looks like somebody's phone screen or computer screen. Um, but the device 
worked and it was a really good gripping film and it's got lots of twists and turns I wouldn't want every film to be like this but it really worked it's a good film to watch knowing nothing about it other than that synopsis she goes looking for a mum but has to do it through technology see where the story takes it it's an it's a cracking little film it's a cracking little film to just go I've heard that's good stick it on um and and see what you see I thought I thought it was not not a bad little film um, like I say, I wouldn't want every film to start doing this. You know, Panavision and Cinemascope exist for a reason. I want to see big things on the big screen. But this was all right. Not bad at all. Good stuff. Um, so those are all the new films that I watched uh, this month. Nice. Okay, that just leaves our resolutions. Um, we are now closing our 12-month projects. We've been doing one film a month, uh, or a film representing each month, because you, you had to sort of get make a little kind of catch-up with your, your first month's films, um, where each month we watch a film according to a certain theme. Mine is the Cronenberg Institute, where I've been watching a collection or a selection of Cronenberg films, where I'm bringing mine to a climax. James, yours is called Legal Cage of Consent, um, where you watch a Nick Cage film picked for you at random. Um, I had my fingers crossed for what you might get with your last film. Uh, what did the f mighty randomizer make you watch for your final installment of your project? So, I got to watch The Rock. All oh, right. Okay. Now, I, I mean, again, I assume you've seen that before. I had seen it before. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was an okay one. It could have been an absolute fucking disaster. No, Nick Cage is it sort of filmography yeah you know it could have been you know ghost rider 2 or something like that oh, it was i think i watched ghost rider 2 it was ghost rider 1 it could have been it could mm -hmm. have been an absolute horror show but it was the rock not really a nick cage film but it's a film that he's in yeah it's if kind of I mean. he's kind of you think he's going to be the lead in the movie and then sean connery turns up right yeah um he's still prominent in it he's no he's probably at least top two billing um, yeah and yeah, it was, uh, it's it's The Rock, it's, you know, it's before Michael Bay went to fucking pot, it was probably, it's, it's definitely Michael Bay's best film, it's a solid film. Jerry Bruckheimer had him under control, didn't he? Yeah, and it's, it's just like a... It's it's, it's a, a it's a, it's a fun idea for a film, isn't it? A group of, a group yeah. of elite soldiers with a grievance take over Alcatraz and now you've got to break into the prison. Yeah, there you I go. Think... You've got it, and and they they get a guy who the only other person to escape from Alcatraz. They sort of hire him against his will to help them do it. Yes, please. Yeah, and I think they benefit from having um, Ed Harris as the villain because Ed Harris is always brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he makes he makes him the kind of villain that you don't entirely dismiss. He's like, okay, I can. He seems to have a grievance. You don't agree with what he's doing, but you see. You know, and he's very good. He's very. He, does, he gives you a lot of like emotion and motivation to the character, doesn't he? Yeah, um, so I, yeah, I thought it's a perfectly good film, like a good six or seven out of ten. Um, mm. Sean Connery's just Sean Connery as usual, um, you know, good action star. Um, and yeah, it, I think it was a nice way to end out the year. It could have been something disastrous, um, but no, I thought, yeah, solid final entry for mm -hmm. Legal Cage of Consent. Very good, yeah. I mean, it's a very 90s film. It's like a 90s blockbuster, which for you watching that is like me watching a 70s blockbuster as opposed to a 70s classic it's like watching a 70s action film that was the biggest film of 1975 
that you know and you'd look back at it and go all of these stylistic choices are just not current are they um but yeah it's good fun I, i'm not sure if you're aware but um uh sean connery insisted on rewrites of the script not surprised basically he d- he did this thing where he made a the that unofficial bond film never say never again and the two british script writers who were from tv the likely lads and stuff clement and lafrenay um they went to america to be script doctors and whenever sean connery gets an idea where he quite likes the idea of the film but the script is shit he says i'll do it but these guys have got to rewrite it and this is one of the films so all the funny lines in that film you know like where the hairdresser is kidnapped in the in in the the lift when uh, sean connery's trying to escape because he insisted on getting a haircut because he's all shaggy. And goes, I don't know who you are or what you've done. I just want to know, did you like your haircut? Every every line you like from that film was, you know, was introduced by the script writers that uh, um, uh, Sean Connery insisted on. Other than that, it's just a good solid action film, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's not terrible. That's that, that would be my final comment on it. Yeah. It's not terrible. So have you have you enjoyed it's it's a fascinating idea that you found that the Nick Nick Cage films picked at random have you have you enjoyed having a film thrown at you to try and react yes. to Yes however if next year it will probably be something where I pick the 12 films mm-hmm. like you have yeah because then I can comment on you know you know I don't think we got the Nick Cage reading the alphabet film. I don't know what film. Yeah, that there's a, there's a couple of films that like when you got the crude you just what am I supposed to do with this? It's yeah, just an absolutely you know. bang average film, right? So yeah, perhaps mm-hmm. if we obviously won't be Nick Cage next year, but we'll pick a mm-hmm. we'll pick something fun. We'll come up with a fun title for it, and then we'll maybe just go with twelve films. Very good, very good. There is some Nick Cage in our future. There's a couple of things I'd like to do next year, which are Nick Cage films. Uh, so it's not over for Nick Cage in this podcast. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's been a great idea. I've really enjoyed listening to you talk about the films, mate. So that that's that. Wonderful. Um, now, my final film in the Cronenberg Institute, as I say, every month we visit the shadowy organisation where the uh, rather strange and, and disturbing um, Mr. Cronenberg uh, creates these visions to mess with our minds. Um, I've left for his final film. It's not my very, very favourite Cronenberg film because that's probably The Naked Lunch. But I think this is the most... This is peak Cronenberg. This is Cronenberg where he took, he was absolutely doing everything that he's famous for in one movie because it's, he's still in his weird shit body horror era, but he's taken, Hollywood's taken notice and he's got bigger actors and better budgets and and just starting to expand what he's doing. Uh, And it's Videodrome. This is from 1983. Um, and it's absolutely mad and batshit insane. James Woods is the perfect leading man for this story, twitchy and seedy. He plays the um, the proprietor or the manager of a a cable TV station back in the eighties. At the time when that stuff was, that was where you started to see all the sensationalist content. But what happens is someone sends him a video of what could be a snuff movie or something else is going on, where people are basically creating their own kind of weird, sick films. Um, and it's called Videodrome, and the people behind them are up to something, and he doesn't know what it is. He's fascinated because he thinks people are going to love this. This is like the ultimate, you know, just, you know, instead of just showing softcore sex films and, and, and exploitation action films, this is the next level. This is going to get everybody tuning in, but he gets caught up in this strange world, and everything goes a little bit mad. It, it's got stuff like um, he starts to lose it, and his body starts to change. His body turns into a VCR player. His like a wound opens up in his abdomen, and he can put videos in them and play them directly in his head. Right? 
And it's really interesting because what David Cronenberg has has uh, got to here is that without any of the technology available, the future and you know of, of what it would actually you know what the tools that this would happen, he's basically predicted people creating their own content. And you know if you you know going looking for weird shit, and you don't have the internet back then, but he's basically created that you know that idea and the idea of people being radicalized by the content they're watching by the videos they're watching which is something that's happening today but he does it in his weird strange Cronenberg way and the people behind the video drone have got a political agenda so they start trying to brainwash him into assassinating people but maybe he's going to take his own course he has this really strange dark relationship with Debbie Harry from Blondie who has an acting performance in it she's actually pretty good uh, and then it takes you off into this really dark terrifying world um really fun really mad really mental um a, a fun fact at, at the end a character uh this isn't the spoiler because you have to watch the film to understand what's going on a character kills themselves with with the catchphrase long live the new flesh or the world change you know the world has changed and the original ending was after that happens there would just be a caption on screen saying your turn and they said, okay, that's a bit too far. We're going to get accused of like trying to p make everybody kill themselves. There was already a moral panic about people killing themselves from listening to heavy metal records. Can't have that. So they changed it to just a fade to black. But they changed the ending because that was too far, even for David Cronenberg. Um, it's 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 messy in places because it's full of ideas um, and you know goes off in sort of weird directions. But James Woods is great. It's one of his best films. It's one of Cronenberg's best films. Absolutely mad stuff. Thrilling, fascinating, strange, and crazy. Everything that I love about Cronenberg in a film. Um, so I mean, so that that's been the Cronenberg Institute. It is. I've really enjoyed doing this because it, it's 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 enabled me to watch all, like basically all but one of the Cronenberg films that I've not seen. The one I've not seen is a mo motorcycle film he did, which doesn't really doesn't really fit in his his, his filmography. Um, and then I was able to just stick three of of the best ones on there to kind of close it off. Um, I have an idea for my for, for next year's projects I'm really going to enjoy, but I, I've really enjoyed doing this. I hope this has inspired people to watch Cronenberg. If you if you if you've already seen all these films, I hope you enjoyed this recap that we've done of them. If you do want to watch Cronenberg, I recommend all the films that we've watched, you know, for this for this year. But some other ones not covered in this project, which are really worth um, watching, are Naked Lunch, which is his masterpiece, Crash, even though it's a tough watch, Existence. We've covered on the pod before. If you like sort of strange sci-fi about virtual reality, that's worth watching as well. A History of Violence is a straight-up excellent kind of violent gangster film, um, and and The Dead Zone. Um, this is a, his Stephen King adaptation where it's his most mainstream film, but it's a really good Stephen King adaptation, one of the best. If you like Stephen King horror films, this is really good. Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen are very, very good in it. Um, and it's an example of when you give Cronenberg a big mainstream opportunity, like he needed a total recall, he might have been given a version of Return of the Jedi to do. He just showed how good he was at making films and he should have been given more opportunities to do what he does. He's still out there making his new films. Thoroughly recommend it. Um, but uh, that's you know that that's what I do with the Cronenberg Institute, and I'm, I'm, I'm I hope you've enjoyed what we've done. Um, as always, I finish with an impromptu top ten inspired by the film. And this is films that changed their endings, and we're glad that they did. Yeah, right. So without spoiling this, because some people might not have seen the ending of these films, these are all films that had a different ending to the one that we saw in the finished film or the theatrical release. 
and it's a good job that they changed it because it, it was better the way that we actually saw it you know it's not like blade runner where actually it was better the, the other ending this is we got the right ending um get out uh, true romance when harry met sally terminator 2 judgment day dodgeball the shawshank redemption die hard with a vengeance alien casablanca and dr strangelove now this is a a good list of films to watch. Those are all terrific films, but it's also a good way to have like a um, if you want to go down a Google rabbit hole, Google what the actual endings of all those films were. I think you'll find it really interesting what what might have been if they if they'd got the uh, the alternative endings. Um, I haven't included Twenty Eight Days Later in this list because even though I like the changed ending, it's controversial, and some people think they should have stuck with the original. Um, there are loads of other films with alternate endings. It's a fun rabbit hole to go down. Uh, but that's my impromptu top ten, and that is the Cronenberg. Uh, institute for this month and indeed for this year thank you for going on that twisted and strange journey with me uh have we got anything else to add for double room monthly mate i think that's us okay cool that's all for the latest edition of double room monthly thanks for listening Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. The latest penalty shootout film quiz will be released shortly. Next week, we'll be back with our regular features with a Ridley Scott theme. First up will be our classics and recommended feature where James finally gets around to watching Thelma and Louise. Then our hidden gem where we tell you why you should get around to watching The Duelists. In The One That Got Away, we'll tell you about Stanley Kubrick's failed attempt to make his own Napoleon film. And in the remake Hate Watch, we look at the odd spectacle of a 21st century biblical epic in Exodus, Gods and Kings. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime. See you on the other side.